Okay, if you want to turn to page 54, chapter 12, our, the second last chapter of Hebrews. We said earlier that, that these chapter divisions um, really aren't biblical, they're, they're man-made in order to try to help us to, to study it and divide it up. But the reality is, I, I wish they didn't have a chapter break here, because you know, chapter 12, verse 1, is not a new thought. It's not, okay, we've, taught, we've done with this great hall of faith, now we're going to move on to something else. Instead, it's really the great conclusion of chapter 11, and maybe the great conclusion of this, uh, of this entire book. When he begins this word, therefore. Now, there, there are a few different words in the Greek for therefore. This one is a very emphatic grace, uh, very emphatic therefore. It's only used twice in all the New Testament. So he's, he's gotten to this great climax. He says, Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses, all these great people that we've just talked about, all the incredible men and women of faith, everybody in the Old Testament that you've ever read. And for you and I, we have the, the great saints of the New Testament that we read about. And then all the other countless church fathers throughout church history and church mothers through church history. And, and how all, maybe, maybe your parents or your friends who have been godly people before you. We have all these great stories to, to lean upon against. These great cloud of witnesses. And this idea, really, I mean, for these people would have been, you know, walking into the Roman Colosseum during the Olympic Games and having the stands full of people. Except these people aren't just there to cheer for you. These are people who've already run the race before you. They know what it's like and they know what it means to finish it and they've experienced the reward. And so these are the people that are there surrounding you, cheering you on, encouraging you. So let us lay aside every encumbrance. Lay aside means to throw it down, to reject it. Every encumbrance, every mass, every weight. What he's building a picture of is this runner. And could you imagine a marathon runner who's getting ready to run the race, right before he gets to race, he grabs his heavy backpack full of stones and puts it on his back and begins to run. Is he going to be very effective? No. So the command to that guy would be, lay aside the encumbrance. Take it off. Get rid of it. So don't let anything get in your way in running this race. And the sin which so easily entangles us. And remember, the sin is very specific. It's the sin of unbelief. The sin of not trusting Him which so easily entangles us. This idea that it surrounds us and hinders us and, and gets in the way. It's almost now this idea of trying to run through maybe a, a marsh or something because you're just constantly trying to get through the sludge. And so lay that aside, throw it down, and let us run with endurance the race that's set before us. I want you to understand that the Christian life is not a sprint but a marathon. And there's a big difference. In the sprint, you just go as hard as you can, just over a very short distance. But a marathon, it's a long distance run. It's a very grueling run. I mean, people the very first guy who ran the marathon, he was running the distance of 26.2 miles, I think it is, uh, to report the victory, the war. And when he got there and reported that the war was over, then he died. Because <laughs> he ran the distance so quickly and he just he couldn't handle it and his body collapsed. 
And so they decided what a great sport this is <laughs> and made it into a sport. And it's interesting, I saw, I saw a t-shirt on, on a marathon runner. He said, marathon running is a mental sport. Everybody in it is insane. And um, there's a lot of truth to that. But, you know, the thing about a marathon is it is a grueling, tiring race. Um, where, where when you run, you don't necessarily keep the same pace. Sometimes you run quicker, sometimes you go slower, sometimes you walk, and sometimes you even take a break and you sit on the sidelines. And then you get up and keep running again. That's the picture that Paul's talking about. Or sorry, the writer of Hebrews is talking about. So let us run with endurance. Let us run this endurance, this race that's set before us. And Paul uses you know, this illustration of a marathon running many times in Scripture. In Acts, he talks about, I do not consider my life on any account as dear to myself, that I may finish my course in the ministry which I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify solemnly of the gospel of the grace of, of, of God. So i got to finish my race. i got to finish my course. In 1 Corinthians 9, verse 24 to 27, Do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but only one receives the prize? Run in such a way that you may w- win. Be determined. Be focused. I mean, when you look at a marathon runner, he's not sitting there going, I wonder did I, what I'm going to have for dinner when I'm done. Or, you know, what about, you know, what kind of car should I buy and so forth. He's very focused. He's very determined towards the goal. And the same idea is what Paul's talking about. Run to know Jesus. That doesn't mean you ignore the things of this world. It means you invite Jesus into your day-to-day activities. Everyone who competes in the games exercises self-control in all things. They then do it to receive a perishable wreath because that's what they would receive. They would receive the wreath. In fact, the Olympic athletes still receive flowers along those lines. But we, an imperishable one. So they get flowers that die. We will receive something that will never perish, will never go away. Therefore, I run in such a way as not without aim. I... Box in such a way as not beating the air, but I discipline my body and make it my slave so that after I've preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified. So there's determination. There's a sense of purpose. There's a sense of working hard and willingness in Paul's mind here. In 2 Timothy 4, verses 7 and 8, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the course. I have kept the faith. In the future there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have loved His appearing. So to everyone who's loved Jesus, who's saved, who's in Christ, you and I, we also receive this great reward. And what's so incredible is we receive this wonderful gift, this crown of righteousness, and then it says that we will then return it back to Him. Because He did it. So there's no boasting in this. It's all about Him. But He has this idea of, I fought the good fight. I've kept the faith. And so in verse 2 of Hebrews 12 then, He says, now fix your eyes on Jesus. The idea here is really to turn away from, to look to Jesus. So your eyes have been focused on one thing. Turn away and focus on Jesus now. Sometimes we can get so lost in the trials and tribulations that we can enter into a bit of a pity party. Poor me. It's not fair how I'm being treated. It's not right what's going on. This isn't justice. And here he's saying, 
Turn now. Fix your eyes on Jesus. Turn away from that and look at what Jesus is doing. Look what He's up to. Fix your eyes on Him. The author or the captain and perfecter of faith. The one who's walked it and lived it out perfectly. The one who's leading us. Who for the joy set before Him endured the cross. Remember, he's, he's still got this idea of looking back and looking forward. He looked back to those the chapter 11 and now we're looking forward. In the same way that Jesus did. Jesus, who the joy set before Him, endured the cross. By the way, what was the joy? What was the joy awaiting Jesus? Did you ever think about that? He was his father. Well, He's already with His Father before the cross. Yeah. You. That He could be one with you. That He could be in you. That He could live with you, walk with you, talk with you, be united with you. That to Him was a joy. Is a joy. That was Him, the joy that set before Him, that allowed Him to endure the cross and despising the shame. You could imagine almost every time he was being scourged, that ball and chain came down on his flesh and ripped out another chunk. Or the whip came with another lash. Or another poke from the soldiers. Or when those nails went through. Or every single time he had to, with excruciating pain, lift himself up in order to breathe. He says it's worth it. Because of the joy set before me. Life with you. And he has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. So Jesus becomes the example. For consider him who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Think about what Jesus went through. He's the model for us now. He's the one that we can look to. You have not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood and you're striving against sin. It hasn't been as bad for you. Jesus had it much worse, meaning He can be that empathetic high priest. No matter what you've been through, He's been through worse. I mean, when He was tempted in the desert, He was tempted for 40 days straight with every every single imaginable way. I mean, we only have recorded the three, but those three are at the end of the 40 days. But it says every day for 40 days He was being tempted. And he never sinned. Not once. And then you had the whole garden episode where he's sweating drops of blood. So he understands it. He, non- he knows the pain. He knows the abuse. He understands that. But then in verse 5 to verse 11 is one of the, one in my mind, one of the richest passages. Because what it speaks to now is the role of suffering in the life of the Christian. And to me it means so much because for so many years I believed the gospel that said, come to Jesus and all your problems will go away. And so if I had suffering, what was the, the subtle message then? God wasn't pleased with me. That He was punishing me now. That I was in trouble and I better fix my life in order to get rid of the suffering. But the reality is, suffering plays an absolutely critical role in the life of the Christian. It's vital. And so in, in beginning in verse 5 to 11, 
the writer of Hebrews opens our, opens our eyes to it. He begins to answer to us a question that has haunted every person from since the cross and probably even before, which is, why do difficult and hard and painful things happen to good people? Why, why when I'm trusting and going and going to God and looking to God, do I go through such difficulties? And this passage gives us a why. And you have forgotten the exhortation which is addressed to you as sons. This word sons here, there's many different words for sons, much like we have babies or toddlers or infants or children or teenagers. We have many different words to uh, identify these, these sons depending upon their age and where they're at. Well, the word here for sons is used for adult sons. It's not meant for babies. It's not meant for young ones, but meant for older ones, mature ones. And I think the reason being is because he's going to talk about suffering. And with, with God and the role that suffering plays, it's really to bring us to maturity, to grow our faith, to grow our trust in Him. And have you ever noticed that with new Christians, with baby Christians, when they're first saved, things seem to miraculously happen. Life seems to be easy. I mean, God shows up in incredible ways. Life was going downhill, they get saved, and all of a sudden, everything just automatically falls into place. Well, it's because they're a newborn. Their faith is so weak. It's as weak as a newborn. And so Father goes almost the extra mile to reveal Himself as faithful and trustworthy that they will depend upon Him. But in order for our faith to grow, then He can't continue along those ways. Because if He did, our faith would never grow. And we would be like a weak, anemic 30-year-old that is as strong as a 1- or 2-year-old. So instead, He strengthens our faith. And so as we grow in our faith, you'll start to notice that He isn't showing up in those same miraculous ways, but in more subtle ways now. Will you trust me here? Will you trust me this way? in order to grow our faith, to grow our dependence upon Him. So He addresses to you as adult children, as adult sons and daughters, My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor faint when you are reproved by Him. For those whom the Lord loves, He disciplines, and He scourges every son whom He receives. Again, there's that not-so-pretty word, scourges. It is for discipline that you endure. Meaning, basically, if you're going through discipline, it's because God is dealing with you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? But if you are without discipline, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Furthermore, we had earthly fathers to discipline us, and we respected them. Shall we not much rather be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they, for they discipline us for a short time as seemed best to them, but He disciplines us for our good so that we may share in His holiness. Do you see the purpose here, the maturity? It's that we might experience His life, that we might experience His power, that we might experience His holiness. And all discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful but sorrowful. One of the great understatements, I think, of the Bible. All pain and suffering hurts. If it doesn't hurt, it's not painful and suffering. Painful and suffering, by definition, hurts. 
And all of it hurts. Whether it is pain and suffering that you've caused by your own sins, whether it's pain and suffering that another has done to you that you are innocent of, whether it's pain and suffering of illness and sickness, or pain and suffering of losing a loved one, or pain and suffering of rejection for your faith, it doesn't matter what the trials and tribulations are. All of it is the discipline of Father. And it's not fun. It's painful. It's sorrowful. It's hurtful. Yet. One of those great words. Yet. Despite it all, those who have been trained by it, those who have learned to trust Father, to depend upon Father, to run to Father, to walk with Father, afterwards, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. That training is so required and so necessary. Uh, how do we, because in the Bible, says that like every good thing comes from God, mm-hmm. and some people, and and sometimes like when bad things happen to people, like they say, oh well, it's the enemy, is you know Satan playing games with you, yep. and and that Satan is like a lion that comes yeah. trying to devour you. So when you suffer trials and tribulations. Is it Satan that is coming to play? Or how Well, here's the thing. We, every good gift comes from God. But maybe suffering is good. we got to begin to, I think, recalibrate the way we think. For example, uh, who's the opposite of God? Quickly. You want to rethink that answer? There is no opposite of God. God has no opposite. But in our mind, we have set up God versus Satan in this titanic battle of good versus evil. And God and Satan are battling it out, duking it out every day. And some days God comes up on top, and other days Satan just seems to you know, get his lucky punch in. No. There's God, and He is sovereign in control over everything. You see, there are three things you and I need to understand about God in order to have hope at understanding the role of suffering. The first thing is, God is in complete control. God is in control over good, and He's still in complete control over evil. That's one of the lessons we learn in the book of Job. Satan can't touch a hair on Job that God doesn't allow. So, here's the good news. Satan can't touch you or do anything to you that God doesn't allow. Want to know the bad news? Sometimes God allows them too. There's a great passage in, uh, in uh, I think it's the book of John where it's in, where Jesus is talking to Peter and he says to Peter, Satan has asked to sift you. And I'm praying for you. Could you imagine Peter? If I'm Peter, I'm saying, um, forget praying for me. Just say no. Don't let him touch me. That's simple. And But Jesus says, I'm praying for you. For that when you are restored, you'll know me. You'll be better off. Meaning, God had a purpose and a plan in what Satan was going to do to that person, to, to Peter. And so when pain and suffering comes into our lives, 
you know, one option is we just immediately call up and pray against it and get rid of it and so forth. And I understand that. I get that. Because pain isn't a lot of fun. If you enjoy pain, that's not healthy. Come see me or Jacqueline. We can help you. So we'll, we'll get you some help. But the reality is, the reality is maybe when tribulations come, our attitude could be, Father, what are you up to in this? Father, what are you doing? Where are you working? Rather than immediately you know, going out and try to you know, condemn the enemy and the devil, why don't we run the Father? And say, Father, where are you working here? He might say, I want you to rebuke the devil. Submit to me. Tell the, the devil to take a hike. Okay. But he might say, just as he said to Paul, no, I'm not going to take that away because I want you to be weak. I want you to learn to trust me. But we need to go to him. But we have to understand that he's in complete control. The trial, the tribulation, the fire ordeal that you're up against is not a surprise. He's not shocked by it. He goes, oh, I didn't see this one coming. What am I going to do now? He's not worried about it. He's not afraid of it. He's in complete control over it. Number two, God is faithful. God is completely faithful to you. He won't reject you. He won't turn on you. Even when you are faithless, He remains faithful, it says in 2 Timothy 2. So He will continue to love you. He'll always be with you, always ready to live in you. He won't say, forget it, you've had your chances. He's always there. He's faithful to you. And then finally, God is love. It's more than what He has. It's more than what He does. It's who He is. Meaning everything He does to you and I is is love. It's His character. Meaning, whenever there's trials and tribulations that are in my life, it is good. Because God has purposed something in it. It's not fun. It's painful and sorrowful. But it's an opportunity for me to be trained. It's an opportunity for me to grow. It's an opportunity for me to learn. So we have to remember God is in control. God is faithful and God is love. Now, now do I need to be afraid of trials? No. I don't need to be worried about them. Because, Father, you're up to something. So I'd be more interested to hear what you're up to than me trying to find a way out. And it's all about discipline, not punishment. Discipline is meant to teach. Punish is just to make you pay. So Father is not punishing His children. Even if the tribulation, the trials, the problems you're up against are the products of your own sin. So maybe what's happened is um, you decided to join the World Poker Tour and you gambled all your money away because you're not a very good poker player. You thought it was blackjack. And so when you showed up, you gambled all the money and you went out on a pair of twos and an ace. And you lost and you're gone. And now your family is on the street and you're struggling and you don't even know how to where your next meal is going to come from. That's not God punishing you. Instead, it's an opportunity for God to teach you. Because the entire wrath of God was poured out onto Jesus Christ on that cross. It's all gone. That's what Romans 5 verse 9 says. The wrath of God's poured out. How much more will He love us now? So it's not punishment. 
Punishment is only about making people pay. But Jesus has already paid it all. Instead, this is about discipline, about teaching, training, and maturing. This is why Paul in Romans 5, verse 3, he says, I can glory in my tribulations. Because he knows it's not punishment. He knows God's not out to get him and kick him. How does he know? Well, he goes on to say, because the love of God has been poured out within my heart. Why do I know that? Well, because God demonstrated, He proved His love, that when I was rebellious, when I was a horrible sinner, when I was His enemy, when I was spitting in His face, that's when He died for me. That's when He died for you. So how much more will He love you now that you're His child? How much more will He love you now that all that wrath has been poured out? So the tribulation isn't punishment. And said in verses 4 and 5, it says it brings about proven character. And it brings about faithfulness and perseverance. And it brings about hope. Because what it's doing is it's bringing about or bringing out the life of Jesus. And then the Psalms and stuff they're always talking about, um, like David is being punished and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. I mean, like, when Jesus died, God stopped punishing us? Like it, well, it he did. I think the punishment there, though, is really the really a discipline issue. Because think of what he did with Israel, how he would he would punish them, as we call it, or discipline them. I mean, punishment and discipline can look a lot alike. I mean, if my, my girls are misbehaving and I, I send them to the, to the room or I send them to, to wash the dishes or something, and write lines, whatever, I mean, it might look like punishment. But my purpose in doing it is to discipline and teach them. And so, and I think so, because with, with God towards Israel, what was He doing? He was teaching them to come back to Him. So when He would use Babylon, and Babylon would come and sack them. But knowing in 70 years later they're going to come back. So as to teach them a lesson. Yes? Is it safe to say that quite often we might not know what he wants to teach us? Uh, maybe, yeah. I think someone once said that life can only be understood backwards, but it can only be lived forwards. That's a very true statement. I mean, you, you're maybe in the midst of a trial and you have no idea what's going on. Until when you're on the other side of it and you look back and go, Oh, now I get it. That would help, but now I get it. The problem is, life can only be lived forward. So there's some things that we may not know. And I think in that case, it's more of a, Will you trust me through this? With no answers, with no sense of where we're going, with no understanding as to what's happening, Will you trust me? Okay, kind of feel like you've blindfolded me and you're now leading me through a minefield, but okay. Because that's what he's looking for. We can still use the same thing to as discipline uh, for somebody else and a lesson for us to see him sure. doing stuff too. Those are always good ones, right? When someone else is suffering and you learn from that. You save yourself a lot of pain and sorrow if you could learn those lessons. Doesn't work as good um, No. No, not often. He still does that though too. Sure, yeah. And if, I mean, that's why we have the Old Testament, to read their stories. So we can learn from Israel. Yes? Would it be that uh, punishment is exacting retribution, whereas discipline is, is uh, meant to form good character? Yeah. Yeah. That's a great way of putting it, Simon. Yeah. 
Perfect. See, what Father wants above all else is your heart. More than anything else, He wants your heart. Do you ever realize that He's got everything else? He's got all the camels and all the cows and all the cattle and all the beef and, and all the food and all, and all the houses. He's got that all already. He's got all the money. He's got all the gold, all the diamonds, all the jewels. Blackberries. All the blackberries. He doesn't have iPhones because those are of the devil. We know that. But he has, so he has, he has, you know, he's got all everything. The only thing he doesn't have is your heart. Now, He paid the price on Calvary. And our surrender and our trust is really the delivery of our heart to Him. Because that's what He wants above all else. He wants you. Even more than for you to be comfortable and happy. Do you realize that? He wants you to experience life in Him, to know Him, to walk in Him. That's what He desires above all else. But you know, in the world, what we want... We strive for this happiness. We strive for comfort. Freedom 55, retire at age 55. Be independently wealthy, retire and never work again. Play, be your own boss. Do, you know, relax. Just We are so focused on trying to build and, and reign in an earthly kingdom of some size. But Father realizes what really matters, which is your heart. Which is why He's willing to discipline you. Why He's willing, out of love, to care for you. In fact, if He didn't love you, He wouldn't discipline you. That's what He's trying to, to say in that passage, the writer of Hebrews. Don't you get it? Because your sons, because your daughters, because He cares about you, He's going to discipline you. It's out of love. Just like as parents, you discipline your children. If you don't love your kids, you won't care. You won't discipline them. Sure, eat junk food all you want. I don't care. Fail every class. doesn't matter to me. If you live in a box, I don't care. If you can't get a job, doesn't bother me at all. But because we care, because we're concerned for them, we're willing to discipline them. We're willing to teach them. So the question is, which do we want more? Do we want happiness and comfort? Or do we want to know Him? Do we want to know Him at all costs? I still remember the day uh, Viard and I, we were, it would be about um, six years ago now almost. We were down in Colombia visiting uh, her family and we were staying at her parents' house. And uh, Viard and I were, were lying on our bed and and uh, we were looking at one another, and I, I just read in John, his Jesus' prayer, John 17, where He prays for you and I. Where He prays that we would know Him the way He knows the Father. And that blew my mind that it was possible for us to know Jesus the way He knew the Father. See, how well did Jesus know the Father? Perfect with such intimacy. And that, that just blew my mind that it's available to you and I. That we don't have to settle for a fraction of that. That Jesus was praying, that this is what Jesus was asking for, 
that we would know Him perfectly as He knew the Father. And that was just so incredible to me. And I was sharing that with Viard, and I said, Would you pray with me that we would know Father, that we would know Jesus the way that Jesus knew the Father? And I, but I said, But, but you realize <laughs> that that comes with a cost. That in order for us to know Him that way, we are inviting more suffering, brokenness, tribulation, trials. Because that's the cost. Jesus says in John 14, you cannot be my disciple unless you pick up your cross. Unless you're willing to sacrifice all. And so we looked at one another, understanding the cost, and we prayed. And now we look back on that prayer. <laughs> We're glad we prayed it. But every so often, she'll look at me and say, this is all your fault, you know. <laughs> I just said, well, you prayed too, so this is your tribulation, not mine. Mine was simple. Yours was difficult because she's slow to learn. So um, She's not here, so. Yeah, I won't share that. I'll edit that part out. So. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Can I stay at your house tonight, Jim? <laughs> The role of discipline, Hebrews, 10, Hebrews 2, verse 10, For it is fitting for Him, speaking of Jesus, for whom all are all things, and through whom are all things, in bringing many sons to glory, to perfect the author of their salvation through sufferings. I mean, Jesus wasn't alone. I mean, sorry, we're not alone. This. Jesus went through that suffering as well. And then in Hebrews 5, 8, Although He was a son, He learned obedience from the things which He suffered. Just because He was Jesus didn't make Him exempt from it. He went through it just as you and I do. And so what the suffering does is it teaches us to trust Him. It brings out that salvation. I mean, read Philippians 2, 5-13 to when sometime when you go home. It's, we're told to have this mindset, to have this attitude, just as Jesus did. Who, although He exists in the form of God, although He was God, He didn't regard it as something He had to hold on to. So He let go of being God or living like God. He gave up control. He gave up His rights. He emptied Himself. He humbled Himself. And He was obedient to the cross. He was obedient to death. And therefore God highly exalted Him. Gave Him the name above every name that everyone should bow at His name. Whether they're on earth, below the earth, or, or on the earth. Everyone will worship Jesus. So work out your, your salvation with fear and trembling. For God is both in you to, to will and to do, to do according to His good pleasure. See, the working out the salvation is surrendering to Him as we go through these trials and tribulations. And it's what brings out the sanctification process, brings us to perfection. So it's to bring us to maturity to work out our salvation. There's a great quote by John Eldridge. How many people have heard of John Eldridge? He wrote, he's written a few books. His, his most famous book probably is, is uh, The uh, Wild at Heart. And then he and his wife, uh, Stacy Eldridge, co-authored a book, um, um, Captivating, which is more for women and Wild at Heart's for men. But he wrote another book, a follow-up to Wild at Heart, called Fathered by God, or originally titled The Way of the Wild Heart, where he talks about how God fathers us, how He walks us through 
uh, the very different stages, in particular, in this case, for men, but I think we could apply it to women as well in general. But one of the stages, you know, he talks about the beloved son and then the, what he calls the cowboy, where they're learning to discover and, and play and, and, and wonder whether they have what it takes. But then the next stage is where they become a man. And that's the warrior stage, as he calls it. And so he goes, how does God raise the warrior in a man? And in general, we could really look at it, how does God raise adult children, not little baby infants? As I think back over the past 20 years, I see now that nearly everything I've learned as a warrior, I've learned on the field of battle, in the school of reality, the classroom of my life. I began to see the answer to the question, how does God raise the warrior in a man? Hardship. Something in you know it's true. I think this is where we have most misinterpreted what God is up to in our lives. As long as we are committed to the path of least resistance, to making our lives comfortable, trial and tribulation will feel unkind. But if we are looking for a dojo in which to train as a warrior, well then, this is the real deal. What better means than hardship? What better way to train a warrior than putting a man in situation after situation where he must fight? You want to know Jesus? You want to trust Jesus? Then what better way than to place you in situation after situation with hardships and trials and tribulations that are far more than you can handle? So you've got nowhere to go to, no one to run to but Jesus. That's the point. But because we've been looking for the the path of least resistance, we've misunderstood them. And so we look at the trials as being bad. But really, they can be our best friend, a great ally, because it leads you to Jesus. It leads you to trust Him. And so our response to this suffering is what now really matters. It's going to determine how well you do in all this. So the first one, first option would be just to give up and walk away from your faith. So when the trials come, you just say, you know what? I don't want it. This is too much for me. And what you end up doing is revealing the fact that you had no faith at all. I mean, this is really the story, uh, you know, think back to when we talked about the parable of the four different soils. And we talked about that rocky soil where the seed, the Word of God falls, and then the soils, their heart, and immediately it sprouts up a plant, a flower that seems to look good. But what's it missing? It's got no roots. So there's no penetration. There was no real salvation. But it looked really good on the outside, on the surface. But then the sun came out, the heat, the trials and the tribulations, and that, that flower wilted because it had no root system. And so their faith was temporary. It wasn't real, authentic faith. And so there are some who walk away from their faith, saying, I don't want this. I thought God was you know, going to bless me and give me stuff, and that's what I signed up for. And they don't want it at all. And so for them, they don't believe God at all. Because they never had faith. Another option is some prefer to choose the cares and rewards of this world over God. To them, God is not very important. He's important, don't get them wrong. But He's just not the most important thing. Maybe it's their job. Maybe it's their family. Maybe it's even their ministry. Maybe it's their reputation. 
And so for this person, they believe God is very small. Smaller than something else. And this is the person that will end up in ruin. Just as Paul warned in Philippians. Then there's others who blame God. Become angry with God. And maybe even bitter towards God. Why didn't He save my marriage? Why didn't He save my child? Why didn't He save my job? My reputation, my ministry. It's not fair. Where was He? He never showed up. He failed me. He let me down. There's a great book, if you're here at this point, there's a great book on our shelves called The Prisoner in the Third Cell. And the end of the book is so powerful because it, it asks the, or shows the question is not why God? Why did you let this down? Why did you let this happen to me? Why did you let me down? The real question is, will you continue to follow a God who's failed to measure up to your expectations? Will you continue to trust a God who didn't do what you wanted Him to do? For some, the answer is no. For some, they curse God. For some, they become very bitter towards God. And for this person, they believe God owes them something. And you have to understand, what does God owe us? He did not even owe you salvation. He did not owe us salvation. He didn't have to save us. He chose to. He wanted to. He wants to give us life and breath and all things. But maybe not the way you think it. Maybe not the way that you have planned. So will you continue to follow a God who has failed to measure up to what you planned? And then there's others who receive this suffering and embrace it from God as necessary and critical to their maturity and growth towards knowing Jesus. And that's really the key here. To not fight against it anymore. To not kick and scream. To not try to find a way out or a way to alleviate it. But to embrace it. To say, Father, I receive this from you. This isn't fun. There's a lot of sin involved in it and it's very painful. But if it's happening, if you've allowed it, that's because you have a purpose in it. And therefore, I embrace it. I embrace what you're doing in me. And I thank you for it. That's what Jesus did in the garden, right? Father, if there's any way to let this cup pass, but not my will, but your will be done. He, in that moment, he embraced his journey to the cross. He embraced all the suffering he was about to endure. The question is, will you now embrace your suffering? This is the person that believes God is a rewarder of those who seek him. God, I'm willing to go through this, this trial, this pain, this suffering because I know at the end of it, it's worth it. And there are so many witnesses. You know, I, I counsel people who walk through, through this journey, and at the end of it, they often say something like this, I wish it could have been some other way. I wish it didn't have to involve this, or this loss, or this pain, or this sorrow, because it was not fun. But, if this was the only way that I could know Jesus then I wouldn't trade it for anything. It was absolutely worth it. So the question is, how will you respond?
How will you respond in the moments of trials and, tr- and suffering? There's a great quote from Frank Friedman at the bottom of that page there. He says, At the moment of death, you and I will be ushered into eternity and forever lose the opportunity to trust God in the midst of our suffering. Because in eternity, there is no more suffering. So right now, we only have now to express that kind of faith in God. This is the only moment you have to trust God in the midst of suffering. Don't waste it. Don't let it go for naught. Instead, embrace what Father's doing in your heart. That He's bringing you to maturity. He's bringing you to that understanding of knowing Him, of walking with Him. Let's pray. Father, this is a a topic that is not easy to discuss in the sense that it is very sensitive. Because we are dealing with people who are in pain, who are struggling, who are suffering. And they may be very beat up and sore right now. And I pray, Father, that they never did not hear from me tonight that this is something that is not to be uh, taken lightly and easily dismissed. But I also pray, Father, that they would hear the hope. The hope that you are involved. The hope that you are at work. The hope that you're moving in their hearts. That they're coming to know and experience life in you if they are willing to, if they are willing to respond, if they're willing to trust. And Father, for those that are going through trials right now, or for those that are soon to begin to go through another set of trials, because for as long as we're in this world, there are trials, I pray that we would embrace them, that we'd embrace your work, and that we would choose you over the pleasures of this world, knowing that a great reward remains for us who continue to trust you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This message was recorded by Crossways to Life. It is the desire of Crossways to Life to know Jesus deeper and disciple Christians to experience life in Him through the message of the cross. For more information about our ministry, upcoming courses and events, or how to contact us, please visit our website at www.crosswaystolife.org.